X-rated movies. What episode number is this? One hundred and twenty. Shit. My name is Matt Fisher. My name is Ryan Whedon. And we are two guys that used to date, and now we don't. Now we meet every Monday and at your apartment mm-hmm. to talk about cinema. <laughs> yeah. Not at all a dead art. No. In fact, uh, what was I watching? Some movie drama that's supposed to be very like cinematic. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's uh, Hannibal, the show Hannibal. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's fine. But I was like, you know what? The pacing of this is the exact same pacing of every other television drama. Like your Breaking Bads or uh, your Game of Thrones's mm-hmm, Games mm-hmm. of Thrones. There I you guess. go. And I was like, yeah, it's like picturesque. Like there's some cool imagery. But is it really any more cinematic than some movies? And I was just kind of like, no, you know? Like, it's still very, like, you have to get from point A to point B in this time frame. Like, you have an hour to, like, get this across. And I don't know. I just, I kind of thought, like, it's definitely better than some multi-camera sitcom. But is it really cinematic? No, it's not. And it adheres to kind of a, a pacing formula that movies don't have to constrict themselves to. They can do whatever they find the themselves fuck to. they want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, there's none of these commercial breaks you hear so much about. Uh, and I think the two movies that we've chosen for today's double feature uh, exemplify that uh, no barriers, no n- nothing confining these these fine filmmakers today. Mm. This is why we trudge through the pile of, uh, you know, horrible gay movies is because sometimes you strike gold. And I think that uh, we found two exemplary movies today, two exemplary bad gay movies. You get those films that just speak to you. Mm-hmm. Loudly. I don't know what that says about us, that these two movies speak so loudly to us, but... <laughs> Uh, it does definitely says something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we get to that, though, Matt, I think it's important that we talk about what we're drinking today. Oh, I would love to talk about it. Well, I've decided to make electric lemonades. Ooh, uh, mm. For several reasons. Number one, it has electric in the title, and one of our movies is all about electricity. Number two, it's colorful, just like one of our other movies. That being said, it's a blue drink, and all blue drinks are trashy, and since we're doing trashy gay <laughs> cinema, ba-bam! A drink to encompass our entire season. Mm-hmm. Are all blue drinks trashy? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really trying hard to come up with a, a counterexample. A, a but classy blue drink? <laughs> yeah. I am struggling over here. <laughs> these aren't bad. I could see drinking these by a pool. Oh, absolutely. Maybe out of a thermos so you couldn't tell it was blue. But uh, yeah, these are easy drinkers, I think. Oh, yeah. They go down smooth. We should we should get wasted pretty In quick. fact, they just kind of taste like juice. Yeah. Like, they don't taste like alcohol, which worries me. <laughs> That you just put like spoonfuls of sugar in this. Mm. Mm. <laughs> don't, don't look at me. <laughs> I'm just the bartender. Yeah. What are they made out of? Oh yeah, there's vodka, <laughs> and uh, a little bit of blue curacao to give it that color. Some Seven uh, Up soda, uh, a little bit of lemon and lemonade, of course. So it's just vodka, lemonade, and Sprite. And some blue curacao. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Okay. I added some soda water in there too because uh, soda's too sweet for me these days. Uh, yeah, no, I get you there. I had to cut that a little bit. 
I mean, that's why I don't drink Fresca anymore, and I've switched to Perrier because uh, Fresca was just too spicy for me. Oh, <laughs> taste buds can't handle that. <laughs> yeah, oh anymore. God! Ah, the bubbles—they burn. What is this? A seventy-watt bulb? What am I in a tanning salon? <laughs> I mean, as excited as I am about these drinks, I'm more excited about today's movies. Well, do we want to say what both movies are or just one of the movies? Yeah, let's do, today for our... ...of bad gay movies, we're doing Socket and Kaboom. Yeah. One of these movies harkens back to episode one. and uh, Does it really? Yeah, I think which I, one? Socket. I think we mentioned on episode one. God, really? Yeah. I was also thinking uh, maybe we should do because uh, there's some movies that like I want to talk about, sort of like the group where I don't want to devote a whole podcast to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like maybe do like gay trash cinema. Like oh. what was that movie? Like Socket or something? Oh my God! Yes. Like maybe I would love to talk about Socket <laughs> if I could find it again. I, well, I was thinking like maybe we could do like a quick rundown, like do like rapid fire, like sure. Is it art? Is it trash? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, is it watchable? Is like is this trash something that like I can sit down and enjoy, or is this just garbage, garbage? Yeah. Uh, and then we get more into a like, what is film? What is <laughs> cinema? <laughs> Discussion, which I'm happy to have. <laughs> So, today, on What is Cinema, we'll be talking about sockets. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I would forgotten about that movie. What a piece of work. I don't remember if that was on the challenge, but I do remember that you recommended that movie. Yeah, I me. feel like I did. I feel like I, once I saw that, I was telling everybody I knew, please just watch this and tell me I didn't like have a fever dream or something. <laughs> okay, so a couple questions for you concerning the movie Socket. Okay. Uh, can you describe or or narrate perhaps even your first experience with this film oh, and yeah. if you could color it in shade the story with your emotions sure 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 um i would love to hear it okay yeah so we're starting with that one yes okay so socket this movie i discovered when netflix started doing streaming services and they had a big huge lgbtq section and i was just you know click 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 on all of them uh this one I can't remember the exact wording of the description, but I remember that the description kind of went on that this doctor got struck by lightning and it follows him as he meets up with a group of gay lightning strike survivors. And I was like, stop, you have me at group of gay lightning strike survivors. Like, I'm watching this movie. You you couldn't stop me. (laughs) I mean, as a you know, as an audience member, of course, I'm like click. But if I was a producer, I'd be like, mm, "Can you go so on a little more about this?" You get gay doctor, lightning strike, and group of lightning strike survivors. That's three fingers of funny you got there. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm in. I'm feeling <laughs> super excited about this. But didn't you feel this way about some a little film called Siren in the Dark too? Did you say the the uh, <laughs> Sort of uh, bubbling in your undercarriage was about the same for both both uh, uh, plot synopses. I'll agree. Yeah, they they were similar. Sure. Okay. 
because uh, I thought this movie was going to be total trash, and I was really expect. I was like, well, but I mean, it got made, yeah, <laughs> and uh, on the basis that it was with about gay lightning strike survivors, so mm-hmm. got to check it out. And I was just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. This movie kind of goes off the rails, like. You meet the group of gay lightning strike survivors kind of around the end of Act One, and then it just goes in places that I did I was not imagining it to go. <laughs> like right. once they start getting the like Doctor Frankenstein style of uh, um, the body plugs. modification, yeah. yeah, and then it turns to like a serial murder thing. It it turns into a horror movie, which I wasn't expecting. Like just so many things, and it's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Even watching it for the podcast, I was just like, "This movie is off the rails." So when you're you're streaming this on Netflix, what year was this? I want to say 2007, okay. 2008, somewhere in there. Uh, and like run through me, like when you watched it, were you were you like glued to your screen, just being like, "What?" Yeah, I was. What la- is going on? Yeah, I was laughing a lot, just being like, <laughs> "What is what is happening anymore?" <laughs> Honestly, yeah, the the part that really started to throw me was the body modification mm-hmm. things. And I was like, I just, I don't even know what to think anymore. Yeah. And then he uses them to murder people. Yeah. It's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And then as soon as it was over, I just told everybody I could who would listen, like, <laughs> please go see this. Watch it while you can. <laughs> just grabbing people in the streets. So, all right, this this brings me to question two, then. Uh-huh. Would you ever show this at, like, a movie night at your place? See, yeah, here's the thing. I, I do have deep feelings for this movie. I like it a lot, mm-hmm. actually. But, like, also, I'm aware that this isn't for everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> this isn't everybody's cup of tea. Uh-huh. Uh, so I would have to choose the audience to see it with okay because i definitely think there's a lot of things that could turn somebody off to something like this yeah (laughs) number one being production value is a little little on the low side so when i was watching this saturday and this morning i watched it twice good morning movie socket (laughs) that's a that's like to ponder over your morning (laughs) cup of coffee exactly (laughs) my only real problems with the movie stem from small budget Mm mm-hmm like, the doctor's office kind of looks like the corner of a parking garage. <laughs> Our main character, his doctor's jacket is way oversized. <laughs> and it, it really looks like they just went to, like, a party costume store and they're like, oh, slutty doctor. <laughs> also, uh, his hair isn't great in this movie. But, you know, I was thinking, I was like, this is just, could all be chalk up to money. Mm-hmm. And... If the film had like a bigger budget and like worked on like real sets or like on a you know real locations, I'm like that would all go away. Yeah. At like the heart of the movie, like the story of the movie, I'm on board with. Yeah, I really like the story. I actually really like the shape of the story. Like you were mentioning earlier, you can do what you want in cinema because I feel like this movie is just a crescendo. You know, it sure. starts with him in the hospital and then just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. Like, I kept seeing Cronenberg all over this. You have sort of dangerous sexual preferences, uh, mm-hmm. we'll say, a la Crash. Mm-hmm. And, like, the support group in this movie reminded me a lot of, like, the little niche group that they had in Crash. Oh, yeah. The Symphorophiliacs. Yeah, the Symphorophiliacs, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you remembered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has uh, uh, sort of fly tendencies yep. in it as well, how... 
this new thing inside of him is taking over his old self. Mm-hmm. It, there's also the relationship aspect remind me of The Fly. Like Gina Davis, like at first it's exhilarating and it's fun, but then it gets dangerous and she doesn't know what to do with it anymore. And Jeff right. Goldblum keeps spiraling out. And like the, the same sort of arc is in here too. And just, of course, the psychosexual aspects of it as well. And also like Crash, it doesn't seem to be gender specific. There's a scene in the support group where everyone's sort of telling their origin story of like when they were struck and what happened. Right. I really liked it because it really was like, you know, this has no gender or ethnicity to it or age or creed. Like this can be anybody. Yeah. And the way that it sort of fades in and out as they're telling their story, I, I was like sucked into it. It's also filmed really well. Like yeah. it's like complete look like completely black background and the camera's like spinning or panning i guess it's a pan yeah Yeah, like panning by and it's just like edited in a way that is very interesting as this uh, visually interesting as you're watching it and then just having like the different voices makes it hourly interesting Mm -hmm. that whole scene i was it really kind of sucked me in and it was a good way to kind of get exposition across mm-hmm. and get you like in the mindset that like all these people come from different backgrounds and they they're all you know coming together for this like experience that you don't even know what it is yet. Yeah. I'm Joanna. My life changed a year ago at a rave in the middle of fucking nowhere. I'm Kennedy. My life changed two years ago on a hiking trip back you know in the homeland. Tanika. My life changed almost eight months, three days ago, on top of the tallest building in Denver, Colorado. My name is Shelley. My life changed about a year and a half ago on a yoga retreat in Machu Picchu. My life changed three years ago on a telephone pole. My life changed on a trip to Big Bear. I feel like there's a good economy of storytelling kind of throughout. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like this is a good script. You know how we were talking about The Velocity of Gary, and you're like, this movie just... Like, it's a bad script. Yeah. Like, you, you started off with a bad foundation. This one feels like a very solid foundation. Very solid, yeah. And um, I think any of the problems you could just chalk up to budget. Because also, like, the scene we're just talking about now, it looks interesting. Like, it looks low budget, but at least you can tell that they were using the camera in interesting ways. And that kind of goes throughout the movie. Like, it's well uh, filmed. Mm-hmm. It just looks kind of low budget. Yeah, and it's just I I couldn't find numbers on on the budget for this movie, but yeah, I just I can't imagine what it would have been like if the movie had you know a ten million dollar budget. Yeah, that's stuff that uh, uh, David Kittredge was talking about, like adding shock, like purple uh, oh lightning right. bolts that they were maybe going to do, which um, would have been terrible, cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. But like they could have, if you had enough money, like added a little bit of that, little touches of that here and there. Mm-hmm. Like the way, you know, once they like kind of touch each other, they use the sound effect of that. Mm-hmm. Like you could have added just a little little bit of like static electricity or something. Yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't dare do that unless you had like the budget to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So our uh, the doctor gets struck by lightning and they talk about how typically when people are struck by lightning, there's like burn marks on their hands and their feet and he doesn't have those. And it suggests that, like, oh, he might have nerve damage or something else. But uh, largely, he's fine. He's a little exhausted at first. Yeah. Uh, but he sort of recovers. And, yeah, he's pretty much okay. And he's got this uh, new and improved uh, need for clean. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is. I think that there's, like, a, a metaphor for meth 
addiction oh, in this. 100 percent yeah which from uh now on i'm going to call a metaphor <laughs> if you'll allow it sure okay it kind of falls apart in the third act i feel once he starts becoming a murderer but there is sort of like this uh overlying theme of of the electricity is like a drug Mm -hmm. and particularly to me it felt like a party drug like meth because they all get juiced up and then they go out dancing at that club Mm -hmm. it also has that sort of like the way that they show that like first night where he goes to that group and they all get juiced up off a car battery Mm -hmm. and they go clubbing at this water only club (laughs) and then it shows him and his you know intern squeeze uh, Mr. Matthew Montgomery. I say we have to mention that. Uh, I mean, Looking good. He's got that cute little butt in this movie. Mm. Mm. And we get full frontal Matthew Montgomery and full frontal Derek Long as well. So both these actors we've seen in previous trips around the mountain. Ugh. Uh, Matthew Montgomery, of course, was in Pornography, a Thriller. Yes, second act. And Derek Long was in Three Day Weekend. And produced by Matthew Montgomery. Yeah, so. so. And of course, Socket is edited by David Kitteridge, uh, director of Pornography, a Thriller. I mean, there's a whole episode you could listen to about <laughs> us talking with him. So, yeah, there's just this little microcosm of LA based gay filmmakers that. Whew, I can't get enough of. I can't get enough of. So yeah, those two, they they become an item. And this has one of the aspects that you and I both appreciate where their homosexuality is like a non-issue. Like, right. No one's coming to terms with their sexuality here. <sighs> They've arrived and they're <laughs> happy with their destination. They even have some uh, some lesbian friends who like aren't struggling at all either. Yeah. Some uh, hard talking lesbian friends. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of liked the the one the blonde lesbian. <laughs> I kind of liked that she was just leaning into the angry <laughs> angry lesbian woman trope. <laughs> I sort of want him not to answer. I have always wanted a reason to kick down a door. They buy a big truck and they clip coupons and they play croquet. Mm-hmm. They are fully developed characters. <laughs> <laughs> they cook. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they cook. One of them watches movies and quotes movies all the time. And uh, interracial, lovely yeah. to see on screen. That's about it. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, calls uh, Derek Long a, a Stepford fag. Welcome to Stepford. Step fag is more like it. We were talking about how, like, some of these game movies are, like, afraid to say AIDS or, or, or things like that. I like that this movie is just like, no, we're throwing fag out yeah. and we're all fine with it. Mm hmm. Just on this note, like, I actually feel like they got some decent actors for this, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I really think Matthew Montgomery's a pretty good actor. He is a very good actor, yes. And, like, it, it doesn't matter if it looks like, you know, he's in the, a parking lot, as you said, <laughs> acting. Like, it looks real. Yeah. And uh, and he really, he, he really elevates material, I think. Yeah. And Derek Long's not bad, either. So, good choices on those. He's got a Jack Nicholson vibe to him a little bit. Like, Shining-era Jack Nicholson He's got hard features mm-hmm. and just it, it didn't come across on three day weekend, but like here it does look like you know how when you watch The Shining and you're like, Oh, Jack Nicholson's crazy when they're driving up to this place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This one it's like even when he's at home like pondering putting together that bookshelf, which is just cinder blocks and boards, it's not like he had to <laughs> IKEA that. Uh I was like, 
He looks dangerous. Yeah, he's got a he's got an element of menace to him, um, which is good. I think the part calls for that. But, Definitely. Uh, yeah, when I was just looking at him more like later on, when he's like polishing spoons. It's like he looks like he could just break all those spoons. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> We're, we we haven't even really gotten into the no no no. Yet. Okay, struck struck by lightning. Murphy hands him a card and is like, "When you're feeling better, come to this meeting." Mm-hmm. And that's where he meets his, his friends, his fellow gay lightning strike survivors. Which I wasn't sure if they were all gay, but I yeah no, I don't think so because they uh, there seems to be uh, intersex hand holding there. Yeah. So like Crash, it seems to be they have preferred genders as to who they'd like to like be in a car crash with, mm-hmm. but. If that preferred gender is not around, then they will Take make anything. do with whatever gender is available. Yep. Any leg hole will do. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they all tell their origin story, and there's that really nice scene of everyone kind of going through what brought them there. And then it's, like, revealed there's, like, a car battery or something in the corner mm-hmm. or some some sort of generator of some yeah. sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they have, like, uh, jumper cables. Right. They all hold hands. They all hold hands. Turn on the turn on the juice. And away we go. One, two, three. Bill, main character, kind of kind of likes it. He realizes, oh, I get this. I get what what this is about. And I actually kind of like that scene after that first night out when um, Murphy is like getting ready to leave because Bill's still sitting in bed, you know, propped up against the back, and Murphy's like telling him. Do this, do this, do this. Like, keep your, you know, eat well. Make sure you keep the circuit clean, blah, blah, blah. But he looks like a doctor talking to a patient. Oh, okay. So I liked that. Uh, Little camera. role reversal. Yeah, I liked that, um, the look of that. So, yeah, Dr. Bill develops a taste for this. And they, like, they sort of warn it's like, you know, this is a dessert. It's not the meal. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you know, doctors know everything. <laughs> So he sort of disregards that. Yeah. And he, they figure out they can juice up from electrical sockets, too. Yeah. Like if they're holding hands or something well, like that. Well, that bar that they go to, like in the bathroom, there's an exposed outlet. Mm-hmm. And they get juiced off that. I think he, the very first night they do. Uh, I thought it was the second night. Maybe it was the second yeah, night. Yeah, I think it was the second night because he's a little more aware of what's going on. And But my my thought is, all right, so there's this bar and it's specifically they're catering to these people lightning strike survivors because there's no alcohol right they only serve bottles of water i'm like okay do you have to pay a cover to get in this place is really popular because they have to like fucking wait in one scene (laughs) to get in and i was like i feel like they should be charging money for the resource that they're using while in this club it's like, yeah, they're paying for the bottles of water. I gotcha. But their electric bill is going to be like through the yeah. roof. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, shouldn't they like meter this and be like, all right, get your juice on in the corner. It's $5 a minute or something like that. Just businessman inside <laughs> I was me. Say, Entrepreneur look inside at you. of me. <laughs> You're like, missed opportunity. Or charge a cover, you know, 20 bucks, all the juice you can fucking absorb. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that the club lo- allows in like non lightning strike survivors, but people who have a lightning strike survivor fetish? I mean, <laughs> lightning strike survivor chasers. What <laughs> lighties, as we call yeah. them? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if you're there with a friend or something, then you can get in. 
I feel like they wouldn't let you in if you were unaccompanied, you know? Yeah. Like, you know how, like, uh, uh, in a lot of parks, adults aren't allowed unless they're with children? Okay. It's one of those things. Sure, 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 sure. Like, you don't have to be a lightning strike survivor, but you at least have to... Know one. Know one, mm-hmm. and, or they'll vouch for you or something. Okay. My thought on the matter, at least. Sure. Because, I don't know, I feel like the bartender can't be a lightning strike survivor. <laughs> You don't think so? I mean, maybe he is. I don't know. He just looked like a little gay boy bartender to me, though. Maybe uh, he had a friend who was a lightning strike survivor, and they got him the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, so they go to this club. I kind of like the music in this, too. Yeah. When they went to the club, it was sort of like Lady Tron knockoff, but... I'm, I was down with it. Yeah. yeah. And even the like uh, soundtracky elements that weren't songs worked too. Yeah. Like I thought that was actually pretty good. Yeah. No, they they, they pulled it together in the uh, the music department. Yeah. So, Doctor Bill's getting a little agitated when he's not uh, juiced up. Yeah. And he juices up at work. You know. Well, he's 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 like I gotta like holding hands is nice, but we gotta like there's gotta be a way we can make this more yeah intense. Well, he, he chews out that intern, and, you know, you get the implication that, like, oh, he's, like, he needs this to be normal now. Uh-huh. Which, you know, that's always a sure sign of an addict. So one of the people in the support group is an electrician, and they start brainstorming. And uh, is this just act two where this happens? Yeah. It seems like such a climax thing, but there's so much more movie yeah. after this. <laughs> this is act two. So Bill's a doctor. And he enlists the help of his electrician friend from the from the group to install male female ends in their wrist retractable uh yeah plugs uh, yeah it, or yeah there's like a female end in one part and then the other wrist they come out like Wolverine style yeah <laughs> uh, truly verse. <laughs> Uh, which I thought maybe was like a play that like each of us have a male and female end inside of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a thought. Sure. Uh, does everyone in the group get I these things? I think they did because yeah. they, I think they show them at Yeah, everyone in the like group. can grab differently, yeah. Yeah, everyone in the group plugged into each other at the next meeting. Yeah. So everyone in the group gets these outlets installed in their wrist. Ugh, it makes me really uncomfortable to think about my wrists in that way. Like wrists are such a, the inside of your wrist is a very sensitive area. Yeah. You know? And so to have like a thing there that you can like i don't know it made me uncomfortable because they talked about at one of the meetings that uh electricity from different sources feels differently right this feels different than a plug socket more organic or something more true does that make sense yeah more perfect yes so that's where he kind of gets the idea of uh what's there's a term grounding it or or you know so that I you guess can, it would just be a more intense somehow. Yeah, like it would be more direct. It wouldn't have to transfer. You wouldn't have to osmosis through the skin or something. Yeah, it would yeah. just go directly into you. He's tired of using his glass pipe. He needs a gravity bong kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, everyone gets it. And it's the scene when they're like, he like puts his like little tongs in there yeah, and like <laughs> gets them like open and clear. I'm like, oh God. And wiggles it around. Yeah. Ugh, that's a lot of pirate surgery now that I think about it. Because if he did the whole group, like, boy. I mean, I guess that, like, when you get juiced up, you got a lot of energy and you're ready to go. So, 
but they can not only plug these into each other, but they can use these to like plug into walls. Right. So now they're really going someplace. <laughs> and uh, surprise, surprise, Bill's having trouble maintaining his addiction. Now that he can just get it from any wall socket he walks by. Yeah. Ugh, it's not good. Not good for Bill. So one night he goes out to go get snacks at 4 a.m. in the morning. Right. They come out from they come home from clubbing and he's still got some energy. So he wants to go get breakfast food. Yeah. So he gets mugged and uh, accidentally ends up killing his mugger. Yes. With his uh, Wolverine style. Yeah, with his male blood. end. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this just sends it on a whole new plane of this is the way to get the juice. Yeah. But... I like this chapter in the movie a lot. Yeah? Because when he kills these people, he stabs them with the male end of his socket and you know, he like absorbs their electrical current, but with it like he also absorbs memories and like senses, things like that. Like mm-hmm. he starts seeing the things that they saw or felt. Yeah. So the first time he does it it's with a mugger, but he kind of liked it. Like, yeah. this was a very new high and supposedly a very intoxicating high. Yeah, because he goes home and fucks, uh, fucks Murphy. Yeah, and so now he's sort of got a taste for human electrical currents. And, you know, he goes and he gets a, is it the prostitute that's next? No, it's a drug dealer first. Drug dealer first, like the hobo mm-hmm. drug dealer. Yeah. And then the prostitute. Yeah, then it's like it's not even about gender anymore. It's just about, like, I need to kill somebody. And yeah. Like, who's the most vulnerable? Who and can I get? Then he picks up that young girl trying to buy beer. Right. Yeah. Uh, the sorority girl yeah. is what I called her. And the wires in his brain for sex and murder are, are getting all crossed. Mm-hmm. Because even when he's, like, having sex with Murphy, he's, like, seeing, you know, the hobo drug dealer. Yeah. He's in the group, and he's seen the hobo drug dealer there, too. Mm-hmm. In, like, kind of frightening moments. Yeah, especially at the group scene. I think I need to cut back, but the thing is... I love it so much, I can't stop! Like, oh, God! <laughs> and there's no hint in this movie prior to those moments that you're like, this is the kind of movie that we're going to be in. Right, <laughs> right. Because this is where, like, it, I think the movie really comes into its own uh-huh. in this act. It's like we've already established, like, these people get high and sexually off on electricity, and there's body modification. But now it's like all these things are like coming together, and it's like sex and murder are all getting mishmashed together as they do. As yeah, they do. <laughs> and unfortunately, like you know, the circumstances align against him. And he has to, or he doesn't have to, he chooses to use this uh, ability on someone near to him. Yeah. Well, because he realizes as a doctor, if he's working in the ER, uh, if people come in and they're like near death or like people would assume that they're going to die or something like that, he can just take those people. And um, I don't think he feels remorse about it until blonde haired lesbian friend comes in from a car accident in that stupid big truck and uh, he can't help himself like he kills her and then that's when that scene comes in when he's talking to Murphy and he's just like and Olivia oh Jesus I can't even say it was an accident because 
As soon as I heard, I was thinking about it. <laughs> and Carol was there. <laughs> and she has no idea. Just like, oh, that's rough. I mean, this is where, like, the tightness in the script comes in. Because they're talking about that big truck way at the beginning of the movie. It's and the Alma Devar's gazpacho. It, yeah. <laughs> it's like they, they talk about it at the beginning of the movie. They talk about it again when they're clipping coupons. It's brought up again when they're playing croquet. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, shit, they're in this big car accident because they were driving this big-ass truck. Yep. Like, all it, like that's such a logical conclusion to them constantly bringing up the lesbian truck. <laughs> and I don't know. It's like you get to that point and you buy it all. Yeah. Like it makes sense logically, like from a storytelling perspective. Just quick aside, were you picturing like the pussy wagon from uh, Kill Bill that a they were black driving? A version of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Great. Just to make sure. <laughs> yeah. There's, it's just little things like that because it gets to that point where, you know, he's wrestling with whether or not to stick it to this girl and you see like the conflict in him as he's about to do it but it's always like he's gonna do it like Mm. he's like you know pushing her head forward to expose her neck and he's like lifting his his arm up and you're just like yeah he's gonna do it like everything we know about this character is leading to this yeah and I, i mean that's half of like why you watch a story like a play or a movie is like that's why I didn't like uh, Bandersnatch, that Black Mirror, like the choose-your-own-adventure thing. Oh, okay. Because part of the joy of watching a movie is seeing how characters make the decision, not how you make the decision. Mm-hmm. And this is like one of those things. Like if this were Bandersnatch, you could choose, do you kill your friend or not? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the idea that we're watching him make that decision is like the rewarding part of the story. Yeah. It's still tough to watch. It is. and like Because I kind of liked her. Yeah. And you... you like you feel bad because like you understand his guilt, but it's like this is like how far his addiction has taken him. Yeah, you know, like Stephen King talks about how like his addiction to like cocaine specifically. He still got up every morning and like made breakfast for the family and got his kids off to school and things like that. Like his addiction wasn't like you know he was in a gutter someplace or or you know homeless. Like, he still functioned and paid bills and did everything, but he still felt trapped emotionally from everybody. Yeah. And this movie, kind of, I think it does, he's still a doctor. Yeah. It kind of shows it, too, when they have that dinner party, because he's like, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom or something like that. And then he, like, flips out in the bathroom. Goes you know? and does a line in the bathroom. Yeah, because he's like, he, he can't hold it together anymore. And then he comes back all juiced up and he's like, everything's fine now. And uh, but you wouldn't know it if you were just sitting at that table with him, you know? Yeah, because when they play croquet, that's like the first or second. It's right after the first or second time that he's killed someone. I can't remember what. But it's like the most normal he's looked for like several scenes. Mm -hmm. Like he looks just totally normal, calm and collected at that point. Yeah. But it's because like he's still like rolling on like one of the biggest highs. And they even talk about the movie, even like the come downs from these highs. Like, even when I'm crashing, I still feel. I can't even think of the word. Satisfied. Yeah. On the way down, it still feels good. Yeah. A sense of accomplishment. So, yeah, why wouldn't you yeah. do it? But I mean, and that's just like. There are people who can control, or there are people who are more. Uh, likely to become addicted to substances than, than other people. And like this movie illustrates that as well, because like 
no one else in this group is having problems like not you know any plug they see just like jacking in so mm-hmm. it's sad yeah of, <laughs> in a way i feel like this movie is kind of a mishmash of like frankenstein and dracula a little bit too okay because he turns into like a vampire in a way because he's sucking other people's lives out but he also has like the frankenstein element of making uh the body part modifications and like instead of bolts in the neck it's outlets in the arms yeah and we kind of feel sorry for him too you know like he's his own monster yeah created yeah yeah i i can see that you know just happens to be about gay lightning strike survivor (laughs) do okay do you think that the gayness is important to this movie I mean, I have an answer, but go for it. Go for it. I do think it is okay. um, because I think specifically if uh, we're sticking with the metaphor that this is ab- about addiction to meth, like that's a, that's more of a, a gay thing than, yeah. um, well, at least in this context it is. So I think that's important. But I also think that there's like an element of like what you were saying earlier, where everyone has like a male and female part to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that plays into it as well because mm. it's, there's like a sex scene between Murphy and Bill, that's pretty hot, actually. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're going for it, and uh, Bill's the bottom in that one. Mm-hmm. Bill being the more rugged, masculine daddy type. Of yeah, the two. you get the impression that he would be like the total top or something like that, mm-hmm. and get like two <laughs> plugs or something <laughs> like that. But he doesn't. He gets one that comes that's uh, you know like the the plug, and one that's the female part of it. So. I don't know. I just think that's that that plays into it too. So, uh, on, sort of on this topic, the scene where they're clipping coupons, and uh, they're like, "We haven't seen you much lately, Bill. Like, what's going on?" He's like, "Well, I met a boy." Uh-huh. Uh And he's like, "Well, I can't." He's like, "He's shown me some things that I I've never done before," and they're like, "Tell me, tell me, tell me." Uh, and he's like, "I I can't talk about it just yet." Uh, and they're like, "Well, we'll tell you some like." sexy details <laughs> and uh one of them's like sometimes i'm not the top oh sometimes i'm like wait does that mean that she's never on top like i i didn't know what the inference there was or that like saying that like she's only bottom like once and <laughs> that's not always i got the impression that it was like she was trying to minimize it being like okay once once or twice i've been the bottom but then the other one was like once or twice, huh? Because it was more than that. Mm. Okay, that's my. That's how I read that. Okay, yeah, I, I, I couldn't. There, there was something about the phrasing and the reactions where I was like, she's either on bottom much more than she says that she is, or she's only bottomed once and never again. Yeah, and that's the shock. <laughs> yeah, A. I choose A. Okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot. Well, actually, both these movies today kind of have it. You don't see a lot of the gay man and gay woman friendship. Yeah, it's there. It's there, yeah. I mean, I don't have it, but... (laughs) (laughs) But I think that that bond is, you know, important. Yeah. Working in a gay bar, I see it all the time, I guess, maybe. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm privileged in that way. Yeah, I think it's good, because I feel sometimes... I see it more from from gay men, uh, of course, but that... They just be like, oh, I don't need women. Fuck them. Like, just the whole gender. Yeah. They just feel like, yeah, I can do without them. Yeah. So, no bueno, guys. So it's it's good to see it on screen. That nice little lezzy couple and 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 uh, you know, Doctor Fag and they're getting along. <laughs> so he ends up killing himself by going to a power station, which we see in like Act One. Yeah. Once again, excellent foreshadowing. Mm. And uh, 
Murphy chases him in and apparently gets electrocuted too. We assume that they're dead, but they maybe aren't. <laughs> the end? Yeah, it's question a, the mark? end question mark. Which is cheesy, but actually fits the movie, I think, pretty well. Yeah. I don't know. I like, you know, I was making a lot of comparisons to Cronenberg because of body modification and sex stuff and but in Act Three, I really feel like it comes into its own. Like I don't think I've seen a Cronenberg movie go into that realm necessarily. Like where they become a serial killer. Especially for sexual gratification. To meet both their like substance addiction and their sexual addiction. That's all blended together at that point in the movie. And it's just, it's done so organically and I believe it. And it breaks my heart to, that this has like two and a half stars on IMDb or yeah. something. And, uh, or No, I think it's like five and a half stars. But uh, I 100% I believe that the majority of the people who gave this movie a bad review, it's because of the production values. Or they're Puritans. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Maybe the Mormon church organized to bring down Socket or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I think the director uh, really shouldn't have had that screening at, like, the LDS headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got all the elements, you know, that we love in a bad gay movie, too, or just a gay movie in general. Like, we've got nudity. Yeah. We've got, like, characters that aren't, you know, struggling to come out. There's just all these elements to it. It's a genre movie. Yeah. But it's with gay people. Yeah. I mean, it's it's body horror to, like, a certain extent. But it it just, it has, I mean, it sounds funny to say this. It's got a level of taste to it. It does. That it's not just like stupid, gratuitous, whatever. Like that scene when they're like making out in the shower and it pans down and you see the television uh-huh. in the shower I with them. I love that shot. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like, this sums up the movie to this point. Like this is what's happening. Like, yeah. Like this is a metaphor for the whole movie up to this point. Okay, so the cinematographer on this movie, his name is Ivan Corona. He's the same cinematographer that did Pornography, a Thriller. Mm. So <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that it looks good still, even if it like still looks like it's digital, you know? So in the book that we're going to write, we got to get all, we got to interview all these people. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like we've got Sean Abley, we've got David Kidridge, we've got Matthew Montgomery, we've got Ivan Corona. Derek Long. Derek Long. We need them all. Yeah. I have so many questions. I want to do a roundtable discussion with them. That would be amazing. So we'll write a book. We'll do a documentary based on the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be, you know, we'll call it the digital celluloid closet. I'll, wor- <laughs> I'll sleep on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess we should bring up that uh, David Kitteridge's editing. He mentioned in our interview with him that, like, the quick, uh, like, split second frame jumps... Uh, was a way to move away from using CGI. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 watching it after hearing him say that, I was like, oh yeah, this totally elevates these moments in this movie. One, I like the idea of putting in the uh, the static. Yeah. A, that fits in nicely with like the image of how they're like touching TVs and stuff like that. Like it's putting in mentally like what's going on internally uh, uh, is the same as like what we're seeing on like a static ETV. Yeah, yeah. But then it's also spliced in with like stuff from the character's past, which plays in nicely to when he starts killing people because then you start seeing stuff from that past. Right. And it gives it an emotional hit to it to see stuff from the character's past real quick. Like, you know, stuff that meant stuff to them. Mm -hmm. Because then when it's like he's killing like that sorority girl who wanted beer 
and you see just like really sweet, innocent things from her just life. Brushing her hair and stuff. Yeah. yeah, you're like, oh, this person's totally innocent. It's not like killing a mugger or killing a drug dealer is somehow not abhorrent. But then when you're seeing like, oh, this girl was just trying to get some beer, like this underage girl, like that's not a, <laughs> a capital punishment crime. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's like they really do he, – he works his way up, like, the morality thing. It's like someone was trying to hurt him, kills him in self-defense. Okay, whatever. Well, then he's killing some, like, low life that no one's going to miss. And then he's killing a prostitute, and now he's killing a sorority girl, and, like, now he's killing people in the ER. Yeah. And, it's a nice escalation. Yeah, it works real well. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a good organic escalation. Yeah, and the whole movie, like I said, the whole movie just kind of escalates. It starts with somebody – uh, recovering in the hospital from a lightning strike and then just <laughs> goes in directions you can't imagine from there. <laughs> I mean, even rewatching it, I'd forgotten the murder parts of it. I thought the movie climaxed around the time they got the body modification. Uh-huh. So the idea that that happens like 35 minutes into the movie, <laughs> I was like, we still have a lot to go. What do they do with this movie? Because you had me watch this, must have been 2007 or eight. Yeah, I think it was the first round of movies. I think I put it on there. And you were definitely like, oh, my God, there's this movie socket. You have to see it. <laughs> I'm sure if you go to Scarecrow, this movie's only been rented like five times, oh. and three of them are from me. <laughs> but, yeah, I just I definitely remember your glee for this movie. And then I watched it myself, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is good stuff. <laughs> and it's one of those things, like, if we, like, if you like this movie, you're, like, in a little club. Yeah. Like, this movie's not forever. It's not for most people, Mm-mm. but boy, if you do like it, you are in a, a special secret club, like the group that they have here. Exactly. <laughs> well, Matt, I have. I want to try something a little different. Okay. Unless you know, barring there's anything else you want to talk about, I think we should uh, maybe talk to the director and writer of this movie. What? Please welcome Sean Abley to the podcast. Am I allowed to trash talk my own film? I hope that's okay. Thank you for for coming aboard. You, you know, you say that this is you're, you're you have a silly little film here, but I just want to say that Ryan and I are both here for it. <laughs> Ryan introduced this movie to me twelve years ago, eleven years ago. Yeah, How and dare he you. has been a vocal fan <laughs> ever since. Well, it's funny because this this movie just sort of like rolled back around recently actually in my my life because um, the co-producers and i all pulled out our contracts recently because we were owed a little money and uh, oh, yeah oh, okay. so we were do- dealing with that and then david kittredge who you've interviewed who ended up being my editor just randomly um well not randomly he came onto the film just to help and he was like running sound and then ultimately was gonna you know s- sort out our guard scenes and then suddenly he was editing the movie anyway so he told me that you guys had talked to him about it and i was like hmm must be in the air socket is in the air (laughs) (laughs) tell us the story of socket like what was the uh beginning point of it how did you imagine yeah what what was the germination of the ideas here so god this is a story that is over 20 years old I, i oh my god so i was living in chicago and this was like 1996, 97. I moved to Los Angeles in 1997. And I had written a spec screenplay that I was sure we were going to produce. 
called Cannibal Clowns and Beauty Queens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. What happened to that well, one? I'll get the I'll buy my ticket right, right. now. Yeah. Please. Oh, it was such a it was so fun. So I'd started a theater company with some friends back there and we had knew nothing about how to do that and we started this theater company and became this huge hit. So I was, you know, all of our work was like being reviewed in all the major papers and stuff. And so I thought, well, if I can start a theater company, I can make a movie. And so at my day job um, in the hot pick booth in Chicago, Illinois, which is the like half price ticket booth for theater, uh, during my downtime, I hand wrote Animal Clowns Beauty on scratch paper from the front that was in my booth where I was working. It became quite clear very quickly that that movie was not going to get made just because of how insanely expensive it would be to do this, my grand vision of Cannibal Files and <laughs> And so I decided to write another script that I thought would get, that could actually be done as an independent film. I was a big David Cronenberg fan, and his movies always seemed so simple and yet so creepy. And that was basically inspiration for me to figure out something that you could do to your body that would also be, you know, sexual in a way. And I, so I came up with these, you know, these, uh, the, the having the outlets, the socket in your flesh. And, you know, I will totally cop to it being a, a, a Cronenberg ripoff. Um, although he would probably be horrified. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, David Cronenberg made a guest appearance in Jason X. True. I feel like he could get on board with this movie. Right. You're saying his standards are low, and I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> this was like 97-ish and I moved to Los Angeles in 97 so before I moved I was I sort of sketched out the screenplay and then when I got here I'm in Los Angeles still to this day and I, I had an agent and I was doing a lot of um, game show writing at the time really? yeah I, well I, in Chicago I would I wrote for a CD-ROM game called You Don't Know Jack you guys oh, I have yeah. 100% played the You Don't Know Jack video game series <laughs> like, yeah so that was done out of Chicago, and I got that job back then. In, in that, I got that job in '96, and uh, we were all—all all the writers were making the grand sum of five hundred dollars a week, and Oof. we all felt like Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most money I'd ever made. I like had a savings account for the first time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that led to me getting an agent, and. I tried to unionize the You Don't Know Jack shop. I tried to make it Writers Guild and the president they of the company. They quickly fired you. <laughs> well, no. What they did was the president of the company's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I want to you know, write for sitcoms in, uh, eventually, and so I want to have my guild card before I move. And he said, well, let me introduce you to an agent in Los Angeles, knowing full well that that would lead to me eventually quitting and moving to Los Angeles. Um, and I did. And because You Don't Know Jack was basically a game show, um, I got a lot of game show writing at the time. And in my spare time, I was writing um, spec screenplays. So I wrote a Facts of Life movie, um, wow. Facts of Life 2000, which tells you how long ago it was. And it was a sort of a reboot of Facts of Life where it was a spy thriller. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yes. Was it going to be like a Charlie's Angels thing, even <laughs> yeah. with Natalie? Yeah, pretty much. They were like solving crimes, and there was this big plot, and Joyce DeWitt would play herself as this evil person who'd graduated school. It was this whole thing. And of Joyce course, that... DeWitt from Three's Company? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it was, oh my I God. mean, can you sense a pattern here of me writing movies that will never get produced? So, <laughs> so that was a, a spec that I wrote that actually got some notice and got me some meetings. Um, and in the meantime, I, I also wrote, I finally wrote Socket, and I decided to write it as a, a gay thriller. And I gave it to my agent at the time, and he sent it out, and we got a few sort of soft offers on it if I would change it to straight people. Uh, uh, that old song. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you remember, this is like 2000. So, well, so, uh, so I got there in 97. So this is late 1990s, early 2000s. And I just wouldn't do it. And, I, you know, I was, by this point, I'd started writing some TV, like narrative television, not just game shows. I was working for Disney Channel and a couple other places. And so I, I was feeling very full of myself. And I was like, no, I will not change my script. I love the idea that you were writing for Disney and refused to make your gay body modification <laughs> addiction parable a straight one. I, I love that. There are lines I will not cross. I can't, I, I can't deny it. Um, and, you know, that was a stupid idea. That was a stupid mistake. I will admit it to this day. Because had I done that, my career probably would have been very different, honestly. Um, because I, it probably would have gotten made with a budget. And, you know, the doors would have hopefully been opened at that point. So then I fell into producing independent film. I went from writing narrative television uh, for like Disney Channel and I did some animation for a couple places to taking a detour into reality television, producing. And then that producing led me to believe erroneously or not that I could produce film and so when a friend of mine showed up with the short film script that he'd written for himself I'm like I can produce that and so then I started producing independent film and then I started thinking well I don't really want to be a producer I want to be a writer and a director why don't I produce my own film and so then that I started exploring how to get Socket on its feet and so that was uh, 2006 we shot it in 2006. So that tells you how long it took. Now, along the way, I was, you know, producing some, let's just say, movies with a lot of heart that maybe weren't that great. Um, do, you, do you care to mention any of them, or do you just I want to leave love, it at that? I would love to. I okay. mean, they're all, <laughs> they're all on my IMDb, so. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. So it, but it's, the, the short that I produced was called The Bear Story, and it was the first gay bear movie really short wow. sort of burned up the film festival circuit it was very popular and then from there i got a job producing a gay film called nine lives which was based on a stage play by michael kearns who is one of the sort of elders of gay theater he wrote his famous play was uh t-cells and sympathy back in the, the day and then i got gay bed and breakfast of terror <gasps> the next film i produced that sounds fantastic. Uh-huh. Um, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's not fair. I mean, because I didn't write or direct it. I just produced it. Uh, it it's fine. You know, it, it, it was... So what happened was, I got that job, and we went to this giant lodge resort place in the middle of nowhere in Arizona, by the way, which has since burned down. <laughs> um, and we lived in it. 
it was the titular location. We all lived in it. The whole production lived in it for two weeks, and we shot there as well. And it's not fair that I say that it's not good. It is a film that like used every penny of its budget trying to be this this really big gay horror film with a lot of ideas, and you know, succeeds or doesn't. You know, I've had people come to me and like, oh my god, that's my favorite of the gay horror films that came out around that time and other people are like what were you doing <laughs> um, and I fall somewhere in between but while I was on that film I was still thinking about Socket and I was thinking I originally I wanted my boyfriend to direct Socket but I was like I'll produce it and you can direct it and I'm going to be on set and there's going to be some some things that I want you to do so because they're like co-directing which now I know is such bullshit like that you cannot work that way. I wanted the film that I wanted. That I wanted. Uh, we finished up Gay Ben Reckless Terror. I was driving home from Arizona, and as I was driving home, having watched this feature, you know, horror feature being done, and close up, I thought, I can do that. I can direct. And so I made the call on my flip cell phone <laughs> as I drove home in, this was 2000. And I called my boyfriend and I was like, uh, I don't want you to direct this film. And he was relieved because <laughs> he was a director writer himself and he just knew that me like hovering over his shoulder to direct this movie would, would not have worked. Um, and I think, were we broken up by this point? We might have been broken up by this point. Would and, he have directed anything we've seen? Well, he directed a bear story that I hmm. produced. And then he didn't actually direct any other films. He took a turn into, like, writing novels and... Um, Are you oh, dating well, Chuck Tingle? <laughs> oh, God, I wish. <laughs> uh, he, um, he actually, he did a web series called Two Jasper Johns for a couple seasons um, a couple years ago. Vinny Lopez is his name, I'll credit him. Okay. But I, I called and told him I didn't want him to. And he was relieved. And so then I had to set up, then I had to, I committed to it and I had to find the money and I was unemployed at the time, and so I was using my unemployment checks to fund this movie, and I brought a couple, I call them the vegans, the other two producers, they're a couple, they're vegan, and they wanted to get into independent film producing, and so we had a meeting, and they loved the script, and they actually had jobs, so they could actually put in some real money, and for the grand total of $45,000, we shot it, in nine days, that's, all around Los Angeles. That's it? That's all the money you had? Wow. Yeah. And that included post. Yeah, that was everything. Oh, my God. You filmed it in nine days, you said? Yeah. Wow. I mean, we were talking to uh, David Kitteridge about pornography, and like that had like a budget of $200,000, and we were shocked at what he got out of it. But $45,000, that's not even like a, a livable salary in L.A. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, no, nobody got paid. Like, nobody got paid on that movie. Oh, wow. Um, wow. I'm trying to see who got paid. And I had sort of a truck that had all the equipment in it. He got paid. The actors did not get paid. We had a sound guy who quit. So then we grabbed somebody who did sound. Oh, David did it for a while. Yeah, it was just nobody got paid. We paid for locations and food and costumes and things like that. And, and we had four locations that doubled for every location you see in the film. Really? So, yeah. We would, we, the most we ever shot at any location was two days, but literally we'd point the camera one way, 
and it would be one location, and then we'd flip the camera around, it would be a different location. <gasps> I love and, it. <laughs> yeah. The director of the movie I produced, the first feature I produced, Nine Lives, we used his house. He, like, we shot every inch of that house. So, like, when the mugger gets killed, that's outside his head. And when they're clipping coupons, that's his backyard. And oh, man. Every Did you use his bedroom for the sex scene? No, that was my other friend, Terry, who okay. at the time was the... He was the VP of casting at some Discovery Network at the time. I can't remember which one. And so he had this beautiful craftsman house in this sort of USC area of Los Angeles. So that is Bill's house where they have the sex scenes. That's where he's sick on the couch. That's where the dinner party happened. I'm trying to think of other things that happened there. But yeah, so we shot every inch of that house too. And uh, yeah, the sex scenes, yes. I, I got my actors to be completely naked for no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. That is. <laughs> well, at the time, Matthew Montgomery, who was playing one of the two leads, he was really burning it up in independent film uh, as an actor. And he was just so excited to be in a, a gay science fiction film because he's such a, a, a sci-fi fanboy like myself. I mean, um, there's really not a lot, so yeah. Yeah, yeah especially at the time, right? Um, and uh, Derek Long, who was the other lead, he was actually in Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror, mm. um, as was Allie, the blonde lesbian. She was in Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror. Oh. Uh, uh, two members of the support group were in Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror. I used a lot of people from Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror. Oh, my gosh. We have to Terror. see Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror. Yeah, because, you know, we've done, like, this is, you know, episode 10 of, like, this sort of exploration of, like, independent gay cinema from this, like, era. And we've kind of discovered that, like, there's this microcosm of, like, L.A.-based filmmakers because like we watched this we watched pornography a thriller we watched uh three day weekend Weekend that had Derek long in it and was produced by matthew montgomery and we just kind of realized that there's this like rotating cast and crew that are in all of each other's movies like between like 2002 and 2010 or something like that was just this like gay indie bubble yeah yeah it was interesting because in that time we all worked on each other's movies and we all did favors for each other. And, you know, the cast members bounced back and forth. And uh, specifically for gay horror, it really felt like it was going to be a genre at the time, right? Because there was, I want to say, Embrace of the Vampire. Uh, I think Hellbent's around this time too, right? Hell, I, actually yeah. worked, I actually worked on Hellbent. Okay. I got, I got fired off Hellbent. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear that story. <laughs> and it, that it movie's all the worse for it, I can tell you. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's like Hellbent, Embrace of the Vampire, The Creatures of the Pink Lagoon, Socket, uh, uh, Game of Earth of Terror. Pornography was sort of the far end of that. I'm trying to think of the others. But th- there was a lot of these gay horror and sci-fi movies that were coming out at the time, all made for no money. And I really thought that it was going to be a genre that would have legs. But by 2010-ish, what happened was the economy tanked. And so all those, I've said this before in other interviews, all those gay dentists that had money to burn, that wanted to get into the film industry, mm. and that were you know, funding all these films, stopped. Because you know, everybody was terrified they were going to lose their house. Yeah, and so you'll notice that just gay indies in general around Ben really dried up for a couple of years, yeah. or their their budgets plummeted. Like these, you know, these ten thousand dollar movies 
literally made for $10,000. Ben and Arthur. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some were better than others. But, yeah, so, so it sort of killed it. And so most of us that were doing it at the time just found other things to do. I mean, I think the guest house films guys, Rob and Rod, they still make films and they, you know, they're, they're still sort of plugging along. But all the rest of us basically, you know, went back to doing what we were doing to pay the bills, which, you know, for a lot of us was still working in the industry. It just wasn't making our own film anymore. But after Socket, I did quite a few. I produced and production coordinated and stuff, quite a few other indie films until that sort of dried up. Pornography being one of them, which I'm actually really proud of. I think that's one of the few that I worked on that I point to and go, that's a really great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we agree, yeah. I think David did a great job on that, and I, I, I was really proud of the work everybody did on that film. And, co- consequently, the biggest budget I've ever produced. Oh, so okay. Bucks, yeah. Can I ask you, uh, how do you feel Socket turned out personally? How do, how do you feel about it? Well, we were the like the last of the shot on video movies with that camera that actually got picked up by a distributor because technology was changing. And so after that, the cameras got better. I'm trying to remember what camera we shot it on. Dave Kittredge, of course, knows because he's such an equipment nerd. So, yes, I look at that movie and I say, we spent $45,000. I mean, to get it in the can was, was probably... 20,000, 20 to 30,000. Hmm. The rest of it was post. And yeah, I mean, you know, we made it happen. And so I am actually, I mean, I always call it, uh, you know, socket, the medium good science fiction gay thriller. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm proud of what we did. And, and, you know, at the time, there wasn't another film like it. You know, we got a lot of notice at film festivals and stuff. And people still to this day talk to me about it. Because it was, you know, one of the few um, at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I look at it. But, of course, I only see the flaws, too. Right? Sure, like if sure. If I were to watch it today, I'd probably want to dig a hole and bury myself. <laughs> I can just see, you know, all the mistakes we made. Well, it's like Ryan and I just spent an hour talking about it. And, like, any of our, like, nitpicks on it really just kind of boil down to the budget. We're like, the script... And the directing and the acting, like, the bones of the movie are really strong. Even though it, like, goes off the rails, like, you're still there. Like, you still believe it. You're like, yeah, this is, like, the logical conclusion of what this leads to for, for you know, Bill, the main character. Yeah, I, I, you know, if I have a strength, I feel like it's as a storyteller because I've always been a writer. And I'm not going to say that Zocket is some genius script, but I do feel like... It does pay off in a way that makes sense. So you know, yes, I'm, I'm happy with that. I am, um, and I had a I had a great time making it. I had such a good time making that movie because um, we were all. It was like summer camp. We were all in it together. You know, we shot 20 pages a day, and and which is you know in Hollywood movies you shoot a page a day. You know, just we just busted it out. It was I, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world, honestly. Yeah, I mean that's like John Waters style guerrilla filmmaking. You know. Oh, I mean, every location that wasn't somebody's house was stolen, like the power plant. We didn't, we didn't have permission to shoot at the power plant. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we just pulled up with all of our stuff, and, and I was like, all right, we're going to do this for as long as we can. Like, until they tell us to, until the cops come by and tell us to go away, we're just going to shoot, so let's just move forward. And I, Does that mean that they actually, like, climbed the fence at the power plant? They did. So 
<laughs> That's so we, dangerous. <laughs> we um, I doctored up some fake film permits, so if any any cops came by, <laughs> I could show them our fake permits. Um, uh, but, Excuse but, me, um, sir. This is printed on the back of a Cheez-Its box. <laughs> right. Uh, these permits are handwritten, Mr. Ablett. <laughs> no, I actually took the pr- film permits from Nine Lives and gave Bed and Breakfast to Terror and, uh, and, and Photoshopped them. Um, so it. they look like they were out. <laughs> but, yeah, no, so the, the power plant, the outside of the power plant, when you see them running up toward it, they're absolutely climbing the fence, the power plant. The reverse is actually, because um, we couldn't get in, right? Right. So the reverse is actually a baseball field at night oh. where there's actually a baseball game happening in the background, um, which is why the sound is a little weird. And our production designer slash producer pulled some signs that look like the ones that were on the fence at the power plant and put them put them on the – it's basically the backstop of the baseball game. Movie, Movie magic. magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love uh, it. You'd never know. totally seamless. Yeah. Well, I will say, now that I said that, I realize it's more than four locations because we did have a few quick, like that, like pickup things or the, the close-up of the arm or the forceps going into the arm, which, mm. by the way, that arm is created by uh, Gage Munster Hubbard, who was on Face Off first season. He's burning it up as an effect artist. Oh, uh, okay. And I hired him on Gay Bed and Breakfast of the Terror, his very first feature. Um, I gotta say, yeah, when when he sticks the like forceps into the wrist holes, oh, that's so squeamy. It's pretty good. Yeah, like, it looks yeah. it looks really good to me. That's a completely fake arm. That is uh, wow. Yeah, I was wondering how they did that. Yeah. yeah, no, I like watching it again. You know, the other night, I like got squeaked out by it. I was like, oh god. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think what else I can tell you about it. It was it was a whirlwind of a shoot, and people were so good natured. And, um, and then Dave, you know, made it into a movie, which I really learned the power of editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like cutting around some of the, the not so great shots. And, and we had, we did some takes, we did some, sometimes we did a single take on dialogue. Like if it, if I thought it went well, we would just move on to the next thing. And of course, you know, then you're looking at that footage when you're done and it isn't as perfect as it was when you were, you know, high on Red Bull at two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. thinking, "Wait, yes. you know." And so Dave like worked his magic and made it look like a real movie. Well, I feel like his contribution is is important, but I also feel like the cinematographer's uh, contribution was nice too. The way that the camera moves and just like the way shots are set up, it all just looks great to me. Yeah, Ivan Corona, who I just met from an interview. I just I just put the word out. I was looking for. DPs and he came in and he had all these references to like Dario Argento and oh damn oh the you know the movie would start really warm in tone and by the end when they're sort of addicted to electricity the color scheme would get cooler and more blue and um, he had great ideas for like the um, the the scenes where we're all sitting in the room the spotlight you know the support group and yeah you know, how to make because you know that's just a room. That's just a, you know, that's one of our locations where we double the room for something else. And so we just isolated and lightened. And he, he, um, yeah, he, he was great and just worked his, his butt off. And I hired him on a couple other things after that. Well, he, he shot pornography as well. Right. Not film, pornography. <laughs> I brought him out of that. Yeah. 
some of the things again were like chewing gum and scotch tape put together like the sound um but then others we just locked into people like ivan you know who and our costume person um ivy and uh dave kittredge that you know worked magic for us for nothing and of course it was at a time when we were all getting started right like we we're all trying to get something together so we could show it to people to get to the next thing I feel like it's a very special film, and I enjoy it, and it has a very important place in my heart. So thank you for making it. Uh, well, I'm happy it does. I, I will say that, um, again, I'm happy with it. It was kind of weirdly the wrong choice for me as a writer-director debut because no gay producers would hire me because it was a horror movie. Like, and the, so they didn't think I could do, like, romantic comedy or anything like that. And none of the horror people would hire me because it was a gay movie and they didn't want to watch it. And, ah. yeah. Discrimination. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. Today, that probably wouldn't even be the case. So it didn't necessarily, I mean, it helped me as a producer, but it didn't necessarily do anything for me as a writer-director back then. Well, maybe us bringing attention to it on our <laughs> on our silly little show will we'll get some of that. Well, you know, every now and again, it just, it kind of feels... Like, Ryan and I don't agree on every movie, but it does feel like every now and again a movie's made just for us. Like, I I understand this movie's not for everybody, but it is definitely a movie for people like us, who maybe we're just weirdos. But, <laughs> yeah, watching it again, and it had been, you know, maybe 10 years since I'd seen it last, but I feel like it genuinely got richer. Like, I felt like even like even though the premise is out there, the narrative arc of Bill is very realistic and I don't know I found it to be very true to life and maybe it's that you know I've known more addicts or or or, or something you know as I've gotten older but I don't know that part just struck me as very genuine mm-hmm. well I have to you know applaud my cast and and Derek Long for you know especially for connecting the dots on that role you know I started out as an actor but then quickly became, you know, a playwright and, and sort of left acting behind. And so when I was making Socket and we were moving so quickly, I actually, you know, we did a lot of, we talked a lot about it, but in the process of making the movie, I would be like, one take, let's go. Let's get set up, let's go. Move, move, move. Okay, we're shooting this scene from the beginning of the movie and now this scene from the end of the movie in the same location. And I wasn't even thinking about how hard that would be on the actors, right? That they would have to, like, totally you know, 180 between these scenes and they just did it without a complaint. And it wasn't until we were done that I would talk to them and they would be like, yeah, that was real tough. That was really hard. <laughs> um, so I, you know, all credit goes to them in, in lesser hands. It would not have been as believable, but they sold it. 100%. I'm friends with almost everybody in the movie still, you know, some people have sort of moved away and stuff, but I, I talked, you know, have contact with them frequently still. I want a reunion. <laughs> well, I wrote a sequel. Uh, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Go uh, on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. It was Socket 2, colon, Brain Cell? I think it was Brain Cell. And the story, which, of course, we couldn't get made because sequels don't make as much money, and so people didn't want to invest in it, and, you know, the whole, the whole thing about the, you know, the industry sort of falling apart at the time. But the premise was that you find out later that Alexandra Billings' character, the doctor, who, gosh, we haven't even talked about Alexandra Billings, who's, like, exploded these days. Um, she was in on it the whole time. So you, you find out that she was 
behind the scenes sort of pushing this these experiments with this stuff. And so the second movie is sort of focused on her and Bill, Derek's character, is still in a coma, but, but Matthew Montgomery wakes up and a lot of the movie actually takes place inside Bill's mind because you know he was absorbing everyone. So we see like the dead lesbian character comes back and the Rasul, the, the African American lesbian, she has the prongs implanted on her so she can go into Bill and see her <gasps> dead lover and <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing. Oh, I have a raging heart on for this script. <laughs> um, yeah. I wish I so, had a know, huge amount of money. <laughs> or $50,000. Yeah. <laughs> if I if I had $50,000 to just do whatever I pleased with, you would be getting it right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had a reading of the script, and I, you know, I got everybody back, and and there was a, I cast a few other folks, like I put Calpurnia Adams in it. I don't know if you know who she is. Anyway, uh, yeah, it was a fun read, and you know we had all the grand plans in the world of, of making that that and other movies, and we just couldn't get it off the ground. But mm-hmm. I I hold out hope. I actually, well, if there's anybody out there that thinks they could do this, I wanted to turn it into a graphic novel. Oh. Uh, yeah, and it, it's really hard to find artists to work on spec for graphic novels. So that's just sort of sitting there. But I would, I'd do it in a heartbeat if I could find somebody. But you still have the script. It's not like you went into an artistic rage and burned it or something. <laughs> Erased all my hard drives. So yeah. Okay. No, I still have, still have it. I'm looking at, you know, if this were video, I could show you the my wall of like all the scripts I've written, all the film stuff that's right here in my office that I see every day. How many scripts would you say you have written that you're just sitting on? Well, the ones that would that I'm that I'm sad that never got produced. There's a handful. There's four or five. The, so the guys who co-produced Socket with me hired me to write a gay Russ Meyer movie. Oh. So it was basically like strippers that kill their boss and they're on the run, called Wildcat Road. And and we did a reading of it. And it's it's a comedy. <laughs> we did a reading of it back then that people still talk about, you know, 10 years later, they're like, Oh my God, I saw that reading it was so funny. And it was, a, that it sounds was, amazing. It sounds like yeah, faster it, pussycat kill, kill. Like, it, well, that was, that was the, the assignment basically was to write a game. <sighs> and, um, we, um, we, you know, had a really great cast and did a reading and everybody just thought it was hilarious. And again, it was just during that time where it was hard to raise, you know, this movie was, would cost about $150,000 and, and, it just that was just impossible to raise. Um, that might be different now. I've actually thought about going back in to see if we could if we could get that one going. Why hasn't Logo big... started its own streaming service? And why aren't they hungry for original content anymore? Yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You know, the funny thing about Logo is, you know, they started, and I was working at MTV at the time, and you know, it was an MTV network then, and literally was in meetings where they were like, "What would you name a gay network?" You know, that kind of thing. And we, every, all, all the gays in the village thought, oh, here it is. Here's our chance. We're all going to go pitch shows and movies to this network. And, and then it just, you know, it just never really happened, unfortunately. So, yeah, you wonder, why aren't they doing more original content? They, I mean, they lost RuPaul, like their biggest hits. Yeah. Well, I just figured, like, you know, everybody's hungry for original content these days. And I feel like if there was, like, gay original content, like, strippers that like murder someone and go on the run from the law like i feel like there's a market for that 
Exactly. I think just to get into the nuts and bolts of the business, I think it's they're hungry for it, but they don't want to pay to have it made. They want you to come to them with the movie already made, and then they'll buy it from you. I, I mean, that is how Netflix yeah. gets a lot of their stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's right, true. Right. So, sure. I mean, if, you know, again, it's the age-old problem. Like, scare up the money. We'll take a look at it. But they're not going. They're not. <laughs> they're not going to pay for the strippers kill their boss and go on a cross-country <laughs> um, movie. Sadly. You know, more and more, I just feel like I don't belong in this world. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, I I like the way your brain works, though. I do, too. (laughs) You know, I started out as a playwright, and I've gone back to that. So I just got my MFA in playwriting, and I'm just cranking out plays left and right. Oh, well, that's cool. Excellent. Yeah. I was going to say, like, Socket's a serious movie, but you kind of seem, like, lighthearted and jovial. (laughs) Well, I have the two two things that are, you know, tearing me apart inside are... (laughs) My background in like improv comedy and oh. my horror, you know, my love of horror movies. Mm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do a little bit of both, honestly. The theater company I started back in Chicago, it's called the Factory Theater. All of our stuff was, most of it was comedy, but a lot of it, especially the stuff that I wrote, had a um, an element of uh, horror to it, like Attack of the Killer Bees, which is a Mashup of all these horror movies. That was my first big hit as a playwright. Um, I adapted Ted B. Michael's Corpse Grinder as a stage play. Okay. That was my first one. Oh, my God, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of that, you know, in my playwriting work. We don't want to keep you all night, uh, but um, this was enlightening talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. And... I wish you the best of luck in all your scripts. I hope they they find financiers. Thank you. I, I it's it's interesting. I think I look at all. You know, Dave Kittredge is still sort of moving forward with something. I think that he wrote re- recently. A lot of us, I think, you know, it's battle scars, right? Like something we wanted to do, we did it, and then it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, or we thought it would. And so to go back into it is sort of daunting. And, and, you know, we found other creative outlets for ourselves. But I feel like there's a, it's coming, you know, we're in the Wild West again, right? It's almost like the home video film where you can, if you can make a movie and you can sell it yourself and you can put it out there, you know, on a million different streaming services. So I feel like maybe it's going to come back. Like maybe it's, it's time to, like, beat the bushes for those dent- gay dentists' money again. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, well, Sean... Sean- Go ahead. Oh say, my Sean, God, think- you guys are such ex-boyfriends. Listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Thank you so much for coming on our show and chatting with us. It was absolutely my pleasure. I love nothing more than to talk about myself, so thank you for giving me the Oh my god, Matt, that was amazing. It was. I love the way that man's brain works. I wish he would replace Harvey Weinstein. You know, when like a big one falls, four little ones move up. Oh, okay. Uh, I think all four should be him. Great, yeah. <laughs> you can take the power of all four of them. They sh- he, Harvey Weinstein's out. Sean Abley's in. Abley. Abley's in. I think.
Also, never in a million years when I first watched this movie would I have imagined that I would be interviewing the director writer of it at some point in my life. But here we are. <laughs> if you have a big lump of money and you're not already giving it to David Kittredge, throw some money at uh, at Sean Abley. Yeah, he has some killer he's, ideas. He's got some vision. Yeah, he's he's a man with ideas. <laughs> this is an imaginative man, and I want to see a lot of the movies he talked about. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I'd like to see him write and produce his own game show. Mm. Like, not just write for one, but, like, concept, structure, the whole bananas. Mm. Escape from the uh, gay, gay bed, bed and breakfast, breakfast of terror. terror. <laughs> he could make an escape room based on that movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anyone with money, this is a million-dollar idea. Come on, Logo. You're just sitting on <laughs> stockpiles of cash, I'm sure. You guys at Bravo. I'm sorry, you gays at Bravo. Yeah. Andy Cohen. Cohen. <laughs> Come on. I know you're a listener. There's a very good chance that he is, yes. <laughs> Leaving those snarky reviews. Actually, I'm going to take a moment right now to just thank all the people who have left a review for our podcast. Um, it really helps to get the word out there and, you know, spreads the word. Gets yep. us up in those search results. It also makes me feel that, like, all the, the, the pings that we get on our RSS feed aren't just bots, mm. uh, which is really rewarding. <laughs> uh, and I also would like to say, if you are bots, that uh, we welcome the new AI uh, overlord. Overthrow- yeah. <laughs> With open arms. We're happy to keep continuing to create content. All hail Emperor Zerg. <laughs> you and I are both uh, fucking, what's his name, Cypher from the Matrix. Mm-hmm. We're just like eating our steaks and be like, I want to be someone important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a podcast host. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want to be millionaire podcast hosts. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Matt, let's talk about this second movie because these electric lemonades are starting to kick in. Today's second movie is Kaboom! From 2010, directed by one Greg Araki. Womp, 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 womp. Uh, you may remember him from our double feature where we did The Living End and Nowhere. Mm-hmm. This was actually on the wheel of Iraqi, this this movie was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, fate decided not to have it be part of the Iraqi-a-thon. I believe that fate looked into our future, saw that we were going to see a whole slew of bad game movies and knew that we would need a palate cleanser. Mm -hmm. Of the double features we've done, while I may have liked both movies, I feel because we are at a climax of sorts in our season, these two movies that we've done today have been such refreshing palate cleansers. It was a really satisfying double feature, I've got to say. Both of them are sort of on either end of the spectrum because Socket was fairly tightly written. Like there's a point A to point B in the story. The pacing's pretty snappy and there's a logical progression to the narrative arc. Yeah, there's some there there. Kaboom has none of that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's pretty. It looks nice. It's so... It's candy colored everywhere i mean that opening scene in the dorm room is as blue as our drinks (laughs) but there's just there's not a lot of there there there's not a lot of plot like my boyfriend watched this for like 40 minutes he goes what's this what what's going on what's this movie about i was like 
Well, this one girl was like kidnapped and may or may not be murdered, and they really rode that mystery out <laughs> for like an hour. Yeah, it's sort of a coming of age story a little bit. Yeah, he's kind of struggling with his sexuality, but it's like he's homo flexible. Like he prefers the company of sure. men. I mean, who doesn't? But he can get hard for ladies. Like he can have satisfying sex with women, but his Peter points to dudes. As they say, yeah. Uh, He's a three or a four on the Kinsey scale. Yeah. Uh, probably a four. Yeah. yeah. I think that's going to keep moving in that <laughs> yeah. direction as he gets older. So I've talked about this movie a lot on the podcast, like mm-hmm. here and there. Recommended it to the gayish guys, like way back in like episode 18. Been... Mike has seen it like three times. <laughs> the boys in this movie are pretty. I don't care what your type is. There's something here for you to look at. Yeah. We got a lot of hot gentlemen. Who's your favorite, Ryan? I mean, Smith is pretty hot. Smith. I mean, his name is Smith, which is the dumbest first name ever. <laughs> I like Hunter a lot, too. Uh, the the cruisy black guy from the beach? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would probably... I'd fuck him. Uh, not the biggest fan of Thor, mostly because his hair is stupid. See, for me, my number one pick is Smith. He hits that good trifecta for me of uh, scruffy, not an ounce of, of muscle mass, and a stupid haircut. Oh, okay. Like that's that's my type. No, Smith's to... hair is pretty bad too. Yeah. Oh no, it's pretty bad. It's that like classic emo haircut. Yeah, it's in front of his eyes all the time. You're all like, God, time. just move it. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. And he's he's so scrawny. Not mm-hmm. an ounce of muscle mass on that boy. He's a, he's a cutie for sure. I would also fuck Rex, just for the record. Rex, your 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 classic sort of all American boy. Mm-hmm. Although I did take a bit of umbrage with the fact that he was a redhead, and he's also kind of like this—he's not as stupid as uh, Thor, Thor, but um, not painted in the best light. We'll say. I don't know. He comes around. Like he's not super keen on taking pointers on how to eat ladies out, but he does it. Look, you want a few constructive pointers? I don't need any pointers. Trust. You so do. The next time we see him, he's having a devil's three-way. Yeah, that's so, true. So, you know, he comes around. Okay. Big. This is a big question. I'm going to just throw it out there now. Would you ever have a devil's three-way? For the uninitiated, that's uh, two men, one woman. I think that ship has sailed for me. Really? Ten years ago, yeah. Especially if it was like Rex or Smith or Thor or Oliver. <laughs> what if the girl or was Hunter? Pretty, what if the girl was as pretty and cute as London? She's cute. Oh, do you know Temple? She's like not only cute, she's my fucking hero. <laughs> <laughs> if American culture didn't slut shame and there was no sexual violence towards women, I feel like we'd have a lot more Londons out there. Mm. And I am all for it. <laughs> she's yeah. She's just like, I don't want any emotional investment here at all. Like, yeah, she, she's like, this doesn't have to be complicated. Fucking doesn't have to be complicated. Do you want to have sex with me, dude? Keep it simple. You, me, intercourse. Yes, no. I appreciate like there's no bullshit. 
she doesn't suffer fools. She has no time for like male ego. She says what she wants and she goes after it and she's unapologetic for it. And I fucking love her. She's my favorite character in the movie for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cause there's Smith's friend who I like, but is needlessly defiant. The liked, lesbian. Yeah. I liked What was her name? Stella. Stella. I liked Stella's sense of style a lot. Yeah, she had a good sense of style. And actually, I would want to hang out with her. She seems pretty cool. <sighs> She's so naggy, though. I know. We could just be little black rain clouds together. It'll be fun. I'd much rather hang out with Juno. I get into so much delicious trouble. But then would you have a devil's three-way with her? Poof. The question is, would she have a devil's three-way with me? Yeah, like, she, she likes queer boys. She finds them hot. She does. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just so happen to find queer guys hot. Sort of my thing. I just don't think I'm up to her standards. Mm. Like, I don't think she'd give me the time of day. Your fragile male ego couldn't take it if you came too quickly or something? Not a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I just... She just seems too cool for me. Like, I'm not mm. that cool. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. If the devil's three-way, if if the guy was hot, like I said, if it was Rex or Smith or Thor or Hunter or Oliver, uh, yeah, I, I would 100% sleep with that. Okay. Oh, I would also bang Oliver. Yeah, all the boys in this movie are cute. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you have this whole thing about like personalities. You're like, Thor's stupid. I'm like, yeah, you're not fucking his, you know, brain. <laughs> like, you're fucking his hot body. I got to I mean... Greg Araki knows how to make a scene sexy. Like mm-hmm. that opening scene where Thor comes home and he's like from the party and he like takes oh. his pants off and stuff. What's it like exactly? I mean, I imagine it's different from being with a girl. It's way different. It's more raw, physical. I mean, because you're intimately familiar with the plumbing there's less mystery and guesswork like you know exactly what to do and how it feels i'm like getting off a little bit <laughs> yeah and it's not because it's like i don't i don't know he, he just really does hot seduction well and part of its music part of it's the lighting part of it's how hot the boys are and it's like just the pacing of it i don't know it's just he's got that ambient white noise i don't know this was like ulrich snouse did some of it yeah um there was a lady that did some of it too oh robin guthrie yeah yeah Yeah. uh i assume it's a lady no it's a man but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) but it's like yeah and, and it's so romantic and they're just like slowly coming together and like it's like bound, you know, oh, like so like the sexy. porno scenes in Bound or, or or the I said that like the seduction scenes in Bound, it's like porno, but like with real actors. And this is kind of the same way. It's like they're just closing in. It's got that soft blue lighting. So there's no imperfections to be visible. Yeah. <sighs> and it's fun as a gay person watching that because you could put yourself in Smith's place so easily or even Thor's maybe. I don't know. Like you could kind of flip flop if you want. And it's just so hot <laughs> mm, flip-flop yeah um i mean it, it turned out to be a fantasy but it doesn't mean that the scene's any less hot mm-hmm. and you know F- thor bursts in with some busty babe and <laughs> drill me with your massive tool i think is what she says you have this like uber erotic seduction scene followed by like the least sexy actual sex you've ever seen Mm -hmm. that's just like all mechanical 
no sense of heat or passion in there. God, I just, every scene with a boy in it, I can look at. Like, it looks great from, like, I don't want to say it's well lit because the lighting is preposterous. (laughs) But it serves to the beauty of the scene. Yeah, everything is candy coated saturated colors it's very colorful movie it's just it's a horny movie like this movie's horny yeah there's constant (laughs) sex like people are fucking all the time everyone's always horny and that horniness is like what's driving them to do everything yeah all character motivation is because they like they want to get laid Mm -hmm. which when you're 19 yeah not far off. <laughs> 19 in college. Like, he had just moved into that dorm, like, earlier that week. It takes place in San Diego, so he's always wearing a tank top. And everybody's showing tons of skin. Like, yeah. yeah, you'd be, you'd probably be fucking too. The first time I saw this movie was out on a vacation at Ocean Shores, and it's like, everyone was, like, too tired to watch another movie. I was like, oh, this one's short. It's, like, 86 minutes or something. So I throw it in, and, like, I didn't realize that it was a gay movie. I'd seen mysterious skin before this but i hadn't seen any other greg iraqi movie i didn't know that this was a greg iraqi movie mm. i had only wanted to watch it because i had seen the dvd at like a safeway in like the bargain <laughs> bin and i'm just like that movie looks sexy so i just like kept the idea in my head of like kaboom i need to see kaboom uh-huh. so we, we bring it out with us on vacation we're watching it and <laughs> like it you know is apparent pretty quickly that it is for gay people <laughs> Primarily. It's not the gayest movie, though. Like, Smith doesn't have a ton of gay sex in it. He doesn't, no, but he does have some. And it's definitely, like, the object of the director's affection is definitely dudes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, like, it's me and, like, one other person out of, like, this group of friends out there watching the movie. Everyone else goes to bed. <laughs> like, the next day, I was like, Do you guys miss Kaboom. We got to watch it again because you guys <laughs> miss Kaboom. So I, like, make them all watch. It with me because I'm just like enamored with this movie. It was just like all the boys were sexy, the plot is stupid as all hell, and I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, you might have to defend the plot a little bit for me, but <laughs> I will not defend the plot, but I don't feel I need to defend the plot. You know, years went by before I watched it again after the trip. I bought it, I was like, I need to have it. You know, <laughs> the, like I get home from vacation, I'm like, Where's my wallet? <laughs> And I remember uh, back when I still live with my exes, we were having some game night, me and a couple other people playing board games, Heartthrob being one of them, and we were drinking, and I got to be like 1 a.m., and we were just talking about like movies that arguably aren't very good, but we watched the whole thing because the boys are hot, Uh and I was like, well, kaboom, that's the ultimate, and they're like, I've never heard of this movie. I was like, how have I dated you people (laughs) and never shown you kaboom? So we put it on at like one in the morning, and when you're drunk with a bunch of gay boys, that is the ideal situation to watch this movie in. Because it turned into an orgy? (laughs) This specific night did not. Oh, okay. So next time you got drunk gay boys on your hand, just put on Kaboom. They'll be like kids watching Blue's Clues. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Going back to what you mentioned earlier, like with cinema having its own structure and can do whatever it wants, that I think is one of the strengths of this movie is that it feels like for Acts 1 and 2 that it's about nothing. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? There's a witch. And <laughs> I like, know. It's bizarre. Know. A lot of weird stuff going on. And then the last act like accelerates <laughs> 
at a rate that's like, hold on, here we go. <laughs> I feel like this is pure Greg Araki here. Like all the stuff that we see in like Nowhere, I feel is just amped up here. Yeah, it feels like it could be the sequel to Nowhere, the like spiritual sequel to it. Maybe there's even rumors that it takes place in the same universe. I could see that because James Duvall. Uh, is dark in nowhere is also in this movie playing an older RA and he's still talking about the uh, apocalypse. So. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I thought that I had that thought <laughs> as much as I like mysterious skin. That was like a very important film mm-hmm. in my development. Having seen nowhere for the double feature. I was like, Oh, this, this movie's pretty good. Yeah. Like I can see the appeal and it's just like this unique little independent film that really doesn't feel like other independent films from this time. Like it does and it doesn't. Yeah. Like it feels of the time, but it also just kind of feels like a sort of Altman-y shortcuts sort of thing mm-hmm. for, for nihilistic Gen Xers. I feel like that's here as well. Like the planet literally blows up at the end. More for millennials. <sighs> I still kind of feel like it's for nihilistic Gen Xers. Hmm, okay. You know, uh, displaced Gen X, Gen Xers born out of time, maybe like, Gen Xers born in 1985. Okay. Because it, it's got that nihilistic streak going through it, but that doesn't mean that there's not fun to be had along the way. Mm-hmm. The basic plot, the, if I was wearing a necktie, this is where I'd be like pulling it out. <laughs> Smith goes to college. He meets a girl at a party. They become like fuck buddies. He has a best friend who's a lesbian who's dating a witch. Some weird things keep happening. W slash R slash T, a woman whose torso was found in a dumpster. The movie begins with him describing a dream that he keeps having. Right. Where he's walking through this long corridor naked, and all the important people in his life are there, like, looking at him. And he comes across this door that has the number 19 on it, and he opens the door, and there's a dumpster inside. Right. And we find out it's there's like all these like mysterious things that keep happening to him and he's like trying to piece it together. So it's kind of a mystery. And um, act three is when we find out that he is the son of a cult leader (laughs) and that son on his 19th birthday needs to return to the cult so that the cult can launch a bunch of nuclear weapons to cause World War III. And then once the fallout is done from that, he can rise up and uh, lead right, the chosen people. This cult, this like, you know, New Order cult has like a whole underground ecosystem that they can hide out in while World War III is going on. Yeah. Uh, Which we find out, mm, I'm going to say about 10 minutes before the movie ends. Like, oh yeah, no, like, just like all exposition. this comes like you you were saying like the third act just ramps up. I'm like, is it the third act or is it <laughs> minutes seventy the to eighty two? Ten minutes of act three. Whew, I mean you're okay, okay, full disclosure. First time I saw this movie, I was watching it pretty late at night and I fell asleep around the time that he calls his mom and is like, we need to talk about my dad. And like and she's like fucking her personal trainer kind of thing. Okay. Which is right around when act three starts. And so I woke up and I was kind of like, God, this is a really slow Gregor Racky movie. Like, is anything going to happen? And then I I went back to where I'd like fallen asleep more or less and was like, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> I missed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a girl at the party and he recognizes this girl who's like otherwise a total stranger, but he recognizes her from his dream. Right. 
And he's like, how did I dream of this girl that I never met before? And she barfs on his shoe. Mm-hmm. And then he gets, uh, he goes to the bathroom. Drugs start kicking in. He meets London. They're both wearing stupid hats. They have sex. And on his way home, he that girl like accosts him, and she's like, "Help, help me!" Right. Uh, and she's being chased by people wearing animal masks. And she puts a USB drive in his pocket. And then he passes out, or is knocked out, I guess. Wakes up. There's no sign of a struggle. No sign of anyone there. But he does have the USB drive. Goes home. Puts the, the USB drive in his computer, sees a weird video of these people on animal masks and a little kid, and then he is ethered, and then he wakes up and he doesn't know what's happening anymore. Yeah. And that basically propels the movie for a while <laughs> when he's not like actively cruising at a nude beach or sleeping with London or, I mean, that's basically the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Is him chasing tail. Yeah. Also, he has psychic powers, apparently. <laughs> well, they say he has psychic powers, but he, they're never in use. No. I mean, we run into characters who have the aforementioned witch, apparently. Yeah. Has which powers. Is that just how Greg Araki views lesbian couples? I don't know. <laughs> that it's like, you know, one is bitchy and blonde and hot. And the other's brunette and hot, but she's actually a witch who's, like, keeping the other one in this relationship. It's like, they were together for, like, a weekend, and the witch is already like, I love you. Yeah, me too. You know, we watched a lot of bad movies this season, and one of the problems with a lot of them is that they looked bad. And this movie looks so good. Yeah, one of my favorite things was uh, just Greg Rackey's styles all over this. Mm-hmm. Like, we get the extreme close-ups of food, like, right after somebody gets, like, stabbed in the eye. Or, yeah, like... and it's the pancakes. Yeah. yeah. I love all the extreme close-ups of food. I love... Oh, my God. I remembered my Xanadu note. Xanadu. <laughs> we talked about uh, on the Xanadu episode how, like, if you're in a movie that's kind of silly and fun, like... Use wipes, you know, like let's have some fun transitions. And there is in this movie. They're all over it. And I was like, yes, (laughs) he got our note. Like, cause I love it. I love the weird, the little like weird uh, wipe transitions in this movie. But there's a scene where after Smith and London have sex and just the way that they're laying in bed and the way that like Juno Temple's hair is sort of like spread out over the pillow. I've got this kind of weird thing where I'm really into making whoever I'm with come, that really turns me on. This just looks sexy. Yeah. This looks like sex was had, and it also kind of like, it looked like college sex, like sloppy, you don't know what you're doing, you're just trying everything and seeing what works sex. The bed looks small too. Yeah, (laughs) looks a little cramped in there. (laughs) Just little things like that. I was like, ah, oh, this just looks like hot college sex. Yeah. And there's just, there's scenes like that all over the place where I'm like, is he having sex with college students? How does he, <laughs> does he just remember vividly like what other people's sheets smell like? Cause I don't know. There's some scenes where it's like Smith gets on top of Juno and it's like, you can see like her pillowcases are like partially framing the scene. And I'm like, I can like smell those sheets. Mm-hmm. Like I know what dorm sheets smell like. Yeah. It's all so good. It just, it works for me. Yeah. 
I agree with you. This movie has like a sexy feel to it for sure. I don't know how he does it. It is like kind of a magic trick because um, we've definitely watched, you know, some movies this season that were aiming for sexy and ended up being a little less than. Oh, I mean, with like the psychic abilities and everything like this, I was like, oh, my God, this is siren in the dark. (laughs) This is what happens when you give siren in the dark type material to like a director and a real budget, like a real director and a real budget. It's it, ludicrous. It's, yeah, so it's still not, not stupid. Like, yeah. You know, I don't sp- think this movie's good. I'm just going to go on record for saying, like, I don't, I, I like it. I like it because I love Greg Araki. Uh-huh. And um, this is just a fine entry in his uh, canon. S- as scale as- of one, one to t- zero to ten. Zero to ten. Objectively, probably like a five or six. Okay. But, like, on an enjoyment level. Oh, it's fun. Eight and nine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Easy watch. Easy breezy watch. I think that's what overrides it for me. It's like I look at it and I know objectively like the plot is stupid when Oliver fucking like touches his temple and like his third eye glows. (laughs) And that's during the 10 minutes that we're getting. We're like last five minutes this is introduced. Like, oh, he had psychic power. Okay. But there's a level of reckless abandon the feeling of reckless abandon like you know we talk about how this is a horny movie and part of sex is that reckless abandon and i feel like that also is encapsulated in this sure, movie sure 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 that they just don't give a damn about these things like no one ever goes to class <laughs> even though it takes place in college uh, the first scene they're like in the cafeteria like oh i have to go to class <laughs> so you know they go to one class a week I really like uh, Stella's class. Imagination theory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emotional painting. <laughs> well, she even says she's like, I'm beginning to wonder if being an art major in the College of Creative Studies is a little too hippy-dippy even for me. Gee, you think? The tone of this movie, Greg Araki just doesn't care that we're introducing psychic powers and glowing foreheads in the last 10 minutes. No, it's fun. He cares about like making a good-looking movie that's silly and fun to look at like and i'm here for it like i just i'm i'm all about it because i mean he's sort of a jokester like if you look at doom generation or you look at nowhere they're kind of funny movies yeah even though they deal with like people full of dread yeah so yeah yeah i mean doom generation is very much about murderers but he just that sense of humor is just like i don't care that like you know you need to introduce the rules of your movie in the first 15 minutes i'm gonna introduce my own rules whenever i the fuck i want in a movie yeah yeah, yeah. it works for me here yeah and for some reason i am too like like i said when i actually watched that final half hour the next day i was like i missed the best part of this movie (laughs) like what the fuck this is crazy and i can't imagine what it uh, like i i mean i can't imagine now but like when you sit through the whole thing it feels like it's one kind of movie going along for so long, and then it just turns into something completely different. Oh, yeah. And normally, I would be so upset about that, but it's okay. Maybe it's because it's just so over the top that it's like, yeah, of course. Like, if there's this cult leader situation, and he's the son, and, like, he's been fucking his half-sister the whole time, and then, like, oh, this guy's got psychic powers. Why <laughs> not? And everyone that you knew in this movie is part of a cult or part of the resistance. Yeah. <laughs> like 
pile it on. And this is all happening during a car chase sequence yeah. too. Like, yeah, okay, whatever movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go home, movie. You're drunk. <laughs> no rules anymore. <laughs> yeah, the the last like ten minutes of this movie is like that hobo like trying to tell you a story on the street, and you're just like, uh huh, yeah. Well, my light is here. I'm gonna cross now. <laughs> Even though, like, the last 10 minutes of the movie feel like it's from a different movie, like, it also ends so abruptly. Like, the world literally <laughs> blows up, which I think is classic Gregoraki, because isn't that, like, roughly what happens at the end of Nowhere? Sort of, yeah. It's like you think that Dark is finally going to have that, like, emotional connection to uh, Montgomery, and he's, like, sleeping, and you're like, oh, yay, we're so happy for him. And then he, like, starts coughing and explodes into a giant cockroach. Oh, right. So it's like, yeah, it's a similar vibe where it's like, mm, this isn't a happy ending. <laughs> Because I remember when I first saw it, like the first when I fell asleep, I was just sort of like, I'm not sure if I'm digging this. But then, yeah, after finally seeing the end, I was like, actually, no, I think the ending kind of redeems a lot of the like sloggy parts of the first part, like muddy, weird things about it. Like it explains the witch and like kind of. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the witch is never really explained. It's like, oh, she's also a witch and everyone like just accepts it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, witches are a part of our worlds. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, I can kind of understand from Smith's standpoint if, like, his friend was being like, uh, she does really weird witchy things if, like, he hadn't seen, you know, like, papers flying around and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, like, when, you know, she, like, touches her without touching her kind of thing. He might just be like, lesbians, right? So I can kind of understand, like, if she says that she's a witch, you just sort of roll your eyes and go with it. But from Stella's standpoint, I think I'd be a little more freaked out. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's just that she's just such a cool cucumber character (laughs) that, like, she's able to just be like, I think she's a witch and people don't worry about it. But Mm -hmm. sorry, I was too busy thinking about Smith as a schoolboy. What's that actor's name? Has he done anything? Thomas Decker. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a child actor. He was in like John Carpenter's Village of the Damned. Okay. I think he was he played John Connor in like uh the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the television show. I see. He was in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I, hold on. I just saw <laughs> Thomas Decker's husband came up when I was doing Yeah, that. he's gay. He was homosexual. Yeah, he wasn't out when the movie was filming. Uh he only came out like 2 years ago or something like that. He's age appropriate in this movie too, apparently, because he was born in 1987, so he would have been like 23 or so. So okay, but he's even in a couple episodes of Seinfeld as a child. Mm, okay, but yeah, so he's he's been acting a long, long time, gay in real life, and man, this was just peak hotness for him. Like this is like Nicholas Holton single man level hotness, just plucked at just the right time. Mm. I will say they kind of like, I don't like how they uh, trimmed his armpit hair. Did they? Yeah. Oh, how do you know? I could tell. (laughs) When he lays down, got an armpit hair expert over here. (laughs) Hey, I'm a pit man. I look at these sort of things. Are you really? Yeah. Did you not know this about me? I did not know this about you. Oh God, I'm giving away all my fetishes. When he lays down on the nude beach, he like puts his arms over his head, and I was just like, "Mm." there's just something so corny about. To clear my head, I went to this nude beach a few miles from campus. And I'm like, uh-huh. Natural progression. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so wait, now that this makes me wonder. So Hunter is uh, part of the cult. 
Why was he fucking Smith? Wait, was he part of the cult or was he part of the resistance? He was part of the cult because he kidnapped them along with Rex and um, Thor. Wait, who was in the resistance car? It was Smith, Oliver, and... It was Stella, Oliver, and the Messiah, James Duvall. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. 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 James Duvall was driving. That's the other one. So why was he fucking him? Well, obviously, just to keep him strung along and happy. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do like that Smith takes it up the butt in this movie. Are we sure that he bottoms? Well, no. Looks like he is, but maybe not. For Hunter, right? Yeah. I'm assuming he did, but it, the way they're doing it, you could you could bottom on top like that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. The uh, Stella's got uh, some pretty choice uh, <laughs> metaphors here. You meet some guy on a nude beach, and five minutes later, you're downloading his hard drive in the back of a van. So... Probably. Probably. Yeah. Because she also uses the phrase when uh, Smith is telling her about Thor putting it to some girl the night before. You just said he was putting a load in some pinhead's dryer last night. I also like, she has a good line when she when he's telling her about her dream and she's like, It's a well-known fact that dreams are just your brain taking a dump at the end of the day. They don't mean anything. Nowhere might be his most quotable movie, but... Stella is probably the most quotable single character. Yeah. She's uh, pretty good. Of, of, I mean, I do like her, but it's like, oh, God, not everything has to be a battle, Stella. Like, <laughs> God. I refuse to do this assignment because you're a sexist loser who has no fucking clue what you're talking about. I don't know. I relate to Smith in that moment, though. I was like, <laughs> smart, independent woman. I'm going to go talk to her. See that I, I think I think London's really the the independent one because she doesn't give a fuck about what other people think. Stella's putting on a show for people. Yeah, I mean I like London a lot too. Don't get me wrong, she's a lot of fun. Yeah, sometimes I have a uh, fruit blindness. I can't actually tell like when women are objectively attractive to you know men. Is Juno Temple traditionally attractive? Yeah, I think, yeah yeah she kind of moved my Kinsey scale needle a little to the. To the, to the lower numbers. Yeah, I mean, me too, but I thought it was just because of her savvy, her moxie. Yeah, I think it's a little both. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, if I were to just see her in a, you know, Marie Claire centerfold or something like that, would it still register? See, now you're, you're, now we're moving into territory I can't help you with. But like her character and personality adds a lot to it. Yeah, but if I'm just going on looks. Right. You need personality. I don't know. I don't know. I mean,. I guess I can tell what's beautiful, but <laughs> yeah, I was just curious because to me, she doesn't look like just any blonde woman. Like mm-hmm. she's got a little bit more interesting features, and I was like, "Is it just me being gay?" And I think that she'd be beautiful regardless. Or do traditional straight men not find this hot? Shrug. Shrug. I don't know. Uh, Her hair's a little ratty. I like it though. I, I did too. Actually, it. I think that that was like a turn on to me a little bit. Yeah, I'm like, oh, she's a little dirty. Yeah, we're, we're not talking about like Marla levels. No, from this Fight isn't Club. Marla from Fight Club. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, it's a little frizzy, but I don't know. It definitely gets tossed mm-hmm. nicely, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and she gets topless in this. And I don't know. She was working for me, but. Once again, I think it, was, it just might have been her personality. I just like the cut of her jib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No dicks in this movie, I'm realizing. Kind of. Uh, you can, like, Thomas Deckard did get 
fully naked. Oh, very but first you don't yeah. really get a it's good look away. at it. Yeah. Yeah. But he was fully naked for that. Okay. We got lots of boobs though. Plenty of boobs. Yeah, there's a fair amount of boobs. There's a lot of butt because you see Thor's butt like a couple times. That's true. Yeah. And you see it in you know interesting positions yeah. too. <laughs> Did you have a, the college dorm experience by any chance? I didn't. No, okay. I didn't. I didn't live in a dorm. I hooked up with people who lived in dorms, but I never went to one. My freshman year college roommate was kind of attractive. I probably, looking back on it, should have acted on that. Oh, really? Yeah, but he had a friend who was like model territory who like looking back on it now was totally throwing himself at me but i was like really yeah i was too scared to be outed i didn't want anyone to know kind of thing so i didn't act on it but man looking back on it he had like yellow eyes he was gorgeous i really wish i would have done something (laughs) i really wish i would have acted on that you wish you would have spread his marie claire Mm -hmm. (laughs) i wish i would have kaboomed him if you know what i mean sploosh (laughs) Never once did I walk in on my roommate while he was naked and trying to S his own D. Mm-hmm. That uh, seems like fiction. What are you doing? What's it look like I'm doing? Trying to suck your own dick? Bingo. We've had this discussion off pod, but yeah, I would definitely sleep with myself if I could. You would not. <laughs> uh, here, we'll just put, we'll make it official. Yes, I would absolutely fuck a clone of myself. And I would not. So when I tell Ryan to go fuck himself, he's like, don't mind if I do. (laughs) It's like, great, where's my clone? (laughs) Come on, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, your clone's over there being like, I'd like to have sex. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe this is a poll we should take to Twitter. (laughs) Would you fuck yourself? Would you fuck a clone of yourself? It was the same age as you. Couldn't be younger. Couldn't be a younger, hotter version of me. (laughs) I wouldn't fuck 18-year-old me. Ew. Why not? That's not right. I'd want, like, me now who, like, knows what I want, knows what I like. You don't want to show the you of yesteryear what's good? No. <laughs> you don't want to just lay not down a teacher. gently and be like, this is what you'll like. <laughs> <laughs> you may not like this now, but you will. that that got dark (laughs) a little fatalistic i don't know i feel like it fits right in with today's movie yeah out of left field and totally appropriate kind of like these movies as a combo uh because they're both movies that i can't recommend to everybody i'm telling you drunk group of gay men they're like herding cats for any other activity but if you put in kaboom they sit quietly in front of the tv (laughs) but i don't know they're they both have their merits and they're both definitely gems in the bad gay movie mountain yeah kaboom is just like pure ecstasy running through my veins. Like it hits everything I want. Like the boys in it are cute. I think the cinematography, it does the candy color thing just right. Like it doesn't hurt my retinas. Like a lot of other candy colored movies do. It's 86 minutes long. Mm -hmm. It's one of the rare movies that has a a soundtrack that I like. All that stuff is, is, is solid for me. So it's a 
delicate tightrope, but man, Iraqi gets it right here for me. Mm-hmm. It's just, I can just lay back and take this one all day. <laughs> well, we have a break next week. That's right. Which is good because this episode is coming out the week of Pride here in Seattle. So we're just anticipating everyone being too hungover to listen to anything in their mm-hmm. ears for a good solid week. But then after that break, we're coming back with a whole new season. And we're trying something new again this season. Mm-hmm. We're doing all guests all the time. That's the plan. It's Guest Fest 2019. <laughs> yeah. And to kick us off, we're, we've got a we got a heavy hitter. We got a slugger here coming in. Yeah. Um. It's uh, a person who I respect a lot and had no idea that they would ever want to come on our silly little show. But I just asked him out of nowhere, and he said yes. But uh, you know, multi-talented musician and producer Eric Blood is going to be here. That is a person I actually recognize their name. Yeah. Wow. That's. Like a real no fooling celebrity. Yeah. So he's coming on and I've allowed him to pick the movie. And so we're doing Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Wait, what's that? <laughs> what's? It's just that's like a real movie. <laughs> it's not It's not like he picked, you know, Kaboom or something. <laughs> Everything's picked... going to seem weird after this season a little bit. I'm sure it's all going to seem a little weird, but. Are, are you sure we can't talk him into gay bed and breakfast of terror? <laughs> I'll send him a message. I, I just feel a little bit more comfortable if we did something that we can handle. A little more of a transition you need? <laughs> that's too too harsh. I don't know. Robert Altman's tough. Yeah. Like, that's, like, tough. 70s Robert Altman, too. Uh, Plug our junk. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, but before we do that, I just want to say thank you, bad gay movies. You've given us a real, a real journey these past 10 weeks. I'm going to get all teary-eyed. <laughs> uh, we can definitely revisit this, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would love to revisit it, but it's also, it's one of those things, like, we did this deep dive, and we discovered this little environment, like, L.A., for, like, a, a 10, 15-year period, had a scene of gay filmmakers that, really up until like the financial crisis and like the DVD market fell out were like on their way to like creating a vibrant healthy scene yeah and unfortunately once the the market dropped out that was the end of it we really are in the darkest timeline <laughs> anyway anyway no nah, thank you bye we can plug our junk Follow us on Facebook at Rated X Movies. And uh, if you're on the Twitter sphere, we're on that at X Rated Movies. Go to our website, xratedmovies.com. We've got lots of content there that you can't get in your regular podcatchers. If you want to reach out and touch us using your, your words, uh, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. That's also a great place to send nudes. And if you want to help spread the word about our podcast, uh, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, leave some stars. This is going to be the last time we're asking for Jimmy Stewart Blumpkins. Oh, okay. So please 
Just type in Jimmy Stewart Blumpkins, five stars, you're done. Well, I'll have those cards I made shredded then. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's it, right? Yes. Great. All right, we'll see you in two weeks for the long goodbye yeah. with Eric Blood. Kicking off Guest Fest 2019. Bye. Keep reaching for that rainbow. <laughs>